Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Good evening and welcome. My name is Fred Paul and you are watching ADH TV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. Well, one of the key characteristics of the COVID pandemic was the overstatement of both the infection rate and the death toll. As early as August 2020, even the New York Times was admitting that the PCR test upon which the entire pandemic facade was built was hopelessly inaccurate. It said, quote, up to 90% of people testing positive carried barely any virus, unquote. Yet our politicians stood up at news conferences every day for years, spouting the latest statistics drawn from these PCR tests as if they logically justified the unprecedented shutdown of Australian society locking us in our homes and shutting down our businesses and schools. And of course, if a posthumous test on a recently deceased person came back positive, then bingo, that person was recorded as having died of COVID, even if the main cause of death was something as unrelated and infinitely more fatal as gunfire, as happened in one famous case in New Zealand. Well, now the opposite is happening with Australia's excess mortality statistics, where the media was morbidly obsessed with the case numbers and casualties from COVID throughout 2020 and 2021. They now prefer to talk about the voice to parliament or climate change than the people who are actually dying thanks to the diktats of our sick health bureaucrats. But if you can't rely on news from News Corp, the ABC, nine newspapers, or the rest of the media to tell you about it, you can rely on the website of Insurance Business Australia to report these disturbing facts. Last week, it said under the headline, excess deaths continue to skyrocket in first half of 2022, it said, quote, Excess deaths for the six months to June 2022 totaled over 11,200, 13% more than predicted, according to the Actuaries Institute's latest data, unquote. These are excess deaths, meaning more than usual. They break down to 61 more Australians dying per day during the first six months of this year. 
As for the causes, the Actuaries Institute attributes about half to the actual COVID virus, but it doesn't say what methodology it uses to calculate this. As we all learned during the pandemic, the most vulnerable to the virus were old, overweight, or had other serious medical conditions. But the most alarming figures are for the remaining causes. Ischemic heart disease, which is short for shortage of blood supply to the heart, had an extra 900 deaths in the first six months of this year. And deaths which had no specified cause by a doctor, there were an extra 2,430 of those. These are plain statistics, but for the human stories behind them, it helps to look at social media where these stories are becoming increasingly widespread. Facebook especially seems to have reduced its censorship of this topic. It could be that Facebook is spooked by the imminent increase of freedom of speech over at Twitter when Elon Musk's offer to buy the platform is finally accepted. Whatever the reason, Facebook doesn't seem to be uh, shadow banning the group Died Suddenly News, which has 110,000 members and is a repository for some incredibly heartbreaking stories. These are people who were coerced into the vaccine or taking the vaccine or even went along with it because they had been convinced by the propaganda and are now paying an awful price if in fact they're still alive. The disturbing thing about all this is the ease with which the medical industry went along with it. Australians might be discovering with the benefit of hindsight that the whole pandemic was an overreaction and the response focusing on a vaccine was misguided, but the medical establishment and some doctors and politicians seem to have yet come to the same realisation. Dr David Richards and Professor Wendy Hoy write alarmingly in The Spectator Australia, quote, Today, the Queensland government is set to pass an amendment to the health practitioner regulation law that will mandate doctors and nurses to follow government regulations and directions, even when they believe the patient's interests might be served otherwise. Once legislated, the, the quote goes on, once legislated in Queensland, the other states are likely to follow suit, unquote. This is a repeat of the policies that statistics suggest have already caused the deaths of thousands of Australians this year alone. Since when does the government have anything to do with the doctor-patient relationship? Where is the outrage about this from libertarians? And how did Australia become a place where such totalitarianism is perfectly normal. There's much agonising debate these days about Australian culture, whether we should allow an Indigenous voice to Parliament, whether we should become a republic, and so on and so on. But it would be more instructive to examine how we, like many other Western liberal democracies, submitted to the totalitarianism of the COVID lockdown, what it cost us and devise ways of ensuring it never happens again. 
Well, remember the good old days when the worst thing a woke corporation could do to you was try to sell you products that were mysteriously imbued with magical values like racial equality and environmental sustainability. Those were the days. If you weren't inclined to fall for woke advertising, there were usually other options based on price and quality available instead. But now all major corporations are being increasingly run by graduates of the same woke MBA courses and the potential for them to collectively enforce their agenda is increasing by the day. Where once big companies thought they could guilt trip you into buying their products with woke values, now they openly want to punish you for not doing so. This is what PayPal revealed on the weekend when it published a policy to fine customers $2,500 for spreading so-called misinformation on social media. PayPal later said the notice was published by mistake and that the company never intended to follow through with it. Sure it wasn't. It's not as if this doesn't follow a pattern. As I reported last month, PayPal recently banned the account of Gays Against Groomers, a group who openly objected to the sexualization of children by transgender activists. It also recently cancelled the personal account of conservative British writer Toby Young and two of his other accounts, The Free Speech Union and The Daily Skeptic. Those accounts were reopened when senior politicians got behind his cause. Ordinary people don't have that sort of cavalry to back them up, which makes this latest development in crony capitalism very frightening. How frightening? Let's ask Alexandra Marshall from The Spectator Australia. Alexandra, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Alexandra, the last time PayPal punished a conservative group, you advised right here on this show your centre-right followers not to cancel their accounts in protest because then only left-wing organisations would be able to benefit from PayPal's considerably uh, good services. But surely, Alexandra, PayPal has gone too far this time. So I almost issued you with an apology in a recent Spectator article, but I've returned to my original foundation before I talk about that, just to do with where we are now. Well, exactly what I said was going to happen has happened. All the young conservative writers have lost their monthly and weekly subscriptions from all their users, and so they're down. The income they used to have is gone. And a lot of them are already walking back to the, the you know, jobs at Coles and whatever else because they cannot make money out of writing anymore. They've lost too much from this mass boycott of PayPal, which is what I warned would happen. There's no government grants for conservative writers. There's no special programs for them. Most publications will not publish them. So if there's no community support, no PayPal, there's no conservative writers. So that's why I didn't issue with you with an apology. But what I almost did is when PayPal said we're going to fine you for wrong think, that's a risk to your own personal finances. It's essentially theft. And no matter how much I like conservative writers, I mean, I'm one of them, you can't have a company thieving from your bank account thousands of dollars because you posted a tweet they don't like. And that's essentially what they came out and said. And now the fact checkers are like, sorry, it's fake news. They never intended to take money going, hang on a second. The notice was out there for a good week. I mean, I got sent it in the email. And uh, they only took it down when it became a trending news item. So I'd say that that's less of a mistake and more of a, oh, we're just kidding. 
Oh, well, still, you haven't answered my question. Was it, are you going to call for people to cancel their PayPal accounts? No, because as I said, there's only really a handful of places where people can make money off writing. And if we want to have some kind of fight in the culture wars, which I presume, Fred, that you want people to be able to write, well, then they have to find a way to support themselves financially. And demonetizing young writers is not the way forward. So until Trump or Elon Musk comes up with a payment platform, that can replace PayPal, then we're stuck with what we're stuck with. And uh, well, it's really disappointing because conservatives are going to turn around and say, well, why don't we have young writers? Why is there nobody else coming up? And the answer is going to be because you all cancelled your PayPal accounts and uh, they're not, they couldn't make a living. So they all left. They're all bookkeepers now or, or surgeons or something. <laughs> or stacking shelves at Woolworths. I don't want to see an entire class of conservative writers that are retired politicians and lawyers. You're great, but we do need some actual writers to come up. Well, this seems to have split our, our side of politics a little bit because um, um, I've got to say, Monica Smith, the, uh, who's the head of the Australian group uh, Reignite Democracy and quite a, quite a conservative hero herself, she says in a post that she put up uh, yesterday or today, people power's winning, that the mass cancellation of accounts actually does hurt these multinationals. You're not agreeing, though. Uh, it's going to hurt them for about five seconds, but they're not going to lose anywhere near enough of their base to learn their lesson properly. Um, and again, people who don't rely on these PayPal services for an income, which are the people who are saying, yes, let's cancel it, they don't seem to understand the damage that's being done underneath it. So my solution is the same thing it's always been. Use your powers, use your platforms, use your voice not to attack things that are going to destroy conservative young writers, but to pressure politicians and to write stories about changing the law so that banking services cannot do this because it's not going to stop at PayPal. This was just a lifting of the curtain just a little bit because the banks that everybody uses are doing the exact same thing. They've already started writing these policies that allows them to circumnavigate banking laws based upon opinion and misinformation. And we're going to see that ramp up during uh, this climate change thing where basically if you buy a burger, well, your interest rate's going to go up. So this is bigger than PayPal and it's not going to stop with a bit of boycotting. Well, I couldn't agree more. At least we agree that this is a, a bad development, if not... Uh, next if... time, Fred. Next time, Fred. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that'll be next week then. Probably. Okay, so now let's talk about the increasingly conflicting versions of Aboriginal history in Australia. The commonly held view these days is that white settlement disrupted what was a peaceful and harmonious existence for the Indigenous people on this continent. One of the people who chronicled the daily life of Indigenous tribes around Adelaide in South Australia was W.A. Crawthorne, who was a distant relative of yours, Alexandra. Yeah. Well, his journals are held in various libraries and have been the source material for many historians, and you have a few of his momentums, mementos in your family. What did Crawthorne do and what did his journals record? So his father, um, W.C. Cawthorn, came over and he was one of the first lighthouse keepers in Western, uh, sorry, in South Australia down there. And his son, uh, W.A. Cawthorn, he was a teacher and he was a painter and an artist and he used to record what he saw. 
And so when he was in South Australia, he was basically commissioned by the government of South Australia to live with and record in Indigenous people down there because that was obviously part of the time down there. It wasn't some kind of random invasion of violence. The people down there were trying to learn about Indigenous Australians. That was a huge thing that was going on. And so he lived with them. He recorded things like the names of their uh, war implements, of their ceremonies. He recorded what went on, their songs, their belief systems. And he's one of only a handful of primary sources that all these people who are reinventing our history now quote. Of course, they quote him disingenuously, but he was a primary source. Now, he was not a politician. He was not an academic. He was somebody who would observe and record. And so he, he made his points without a political overture. And of course, they're dated from the time, but they give a great insight into Indigenous culture. And what we don't see in any original text is some kind of frontier war between colonial forces and Indigenous forces. It wasn't. It was as everyone was taught when they were children. Well, Let's, let's get on to let, let's get on to the, the the confrontations in a second because we need to we need to also speak about the Australian War Memorial in that well, context. Uh, just before I was just going to say it wasn't some peaceful Eden that uh, colonials arrived on. It was a warring nation of tribes who did not Indeed. share a language. They did not share a culture. And uh, when colonials arrived, they became another tribe on the shores. And sometimes they traded and sometimes they fought. But it was very much. Uh, nothing related to what we're hearing today. So what sort of battles did uh, W.A. Crawthorne witness around Adelaide? So he witnessed some skirmishes because a lot of, uh, when they were like walking along a river, for instance, they might come across a hostile tribe. And so there, the Indigenous people they were with would try and avoid these tribes that would just attack anybody they came across. So obviously settlers came across these people and uh, a lot of the conflicts that are written down are because settlers were attacked, either when they were running cattle or in their homes. And it was a crime, let's not forget, to kill or shoot an Aboriginal person without it being self-defence. So none of this was legal. Any incidents that happened were punished by law. But the skirmishes hardly amount to what you would call a war. Yeah, well, I've seen passages from our new national school curriculum that portray uh, the indigenous culture pre-settlement as almost like, uh, almost biblical, uh, like the Garden of Eden, that they lived in harmony with nature and harmony with each other. You're saying that's a little bit different to the actual <laughs> truth, aren't you? Well, Cawthorn's notes show very clearly that even his small tribes in Adelaide, which he was following, had more than a dozen weapons of war that they used to use on their tribes. And he would describe how uh, they often would fight just for fun. Uh, it wasn't like a, a peaceful... Uh, I'd love to see an activist, any female activist in particular, go back to pre-colonial days and live in these cultures because I guarantee you they would not. I mean, European culture gets a lot of crap for being patriarchal. Well, these were some of the most patriarchal cultures in history. Uh, women had no rights. They basically were traded. They had children. And then at about 35... Uh, to 40, they were discarded as wives. So it's not exactly a, a feminist utopia that it's being made out to be. Well, and speaking of children, there's one passage from the journal that I've read that I found quite alarming. Uh, and I'll just read it out to you now. Quote, infanticide is common. This is your your relative W.A. Crawthorne talking. <laughs> it's in the Mitchell Library, yep. kids. It's not an yep. obscure thing. It's exactly. an original text. <laughs> Quote, infanticide is common, frequently merely to get rid of the children and to save the trouble of bringing them up. All malformations are put to death and the natives look upon the deformed or maimed Europeans 
with the greatest abhorrence and frequently Mark remark, why don't you kill him? Uh, unquote. That's he, in that latter part is referring to anyone of, of European extraction who might have been sick or injured. They just the, the attitude among the indigenous was, well, you better discard them because they're a, they are a liability. That was a problem when they were walking with the tribes is uh, if you hurt yourself, um, you had to make the case that you were going to get better. <laughs> so uh, that was something that shocked Cawthorn. And a lot of these, it was a culture clash. I mean, people forget that when Australian colonialists met Aboriginal culture, it was the largest gap in two civilizations that has ever happened in history. And considering how we ended up coming together as a relatively peaceful and unified nation until the Marxists came along, we actually did extraordinarily well. That's a very good point. Okay, now let's talk about this in relation to the Australian War Memorial. The Memorial's Governing Council has reportedly agreed to include representations of the so-called frontier wars that we were just talking about from the early days of white settlement. Can you call the conflicts between the Indigenous and settlers a war? Well, considering that there was no armed military, there was no uh, opposing foe, it was not actually ever at any stage organised that way, then no, you can't call it an armed force or a militia, <coughs> and certainly not from the, uh, the tribes on the other side of it. It was as we said, a complicated clash of cultures that was almost entirely made between settlers and the groups that they came across, which were either peacefully trading or clashed, depending. So you can't have a war memorial which was put up to honour our servicemen desecrated with not only a fabrication of history, but something that shouldn't be at the war memorial to start with. If you want to go down this path of reinventing Australians' history, please pick a different building. Yes, well, let's quote the Australian War Memorial Act of 1980, which says, quote, it is, the, the memorial is for, quote, wars and warlike operations in which Australians have been on active service, unquote. Clearly, that precludes anything that involved skirmishes between settlers and the Indigenous. I think what's happening is a lot of American ideas are coming into Australia. And while there were militia and uh, genuine wars in America with Indigenous people, which the Marxists over there have brought into their Black Lives Matter stuff, that's not an Australian history. That's got nothing to do with how Australia was formed. But they're watching Hollywood movies and seeing the stuff and just sort of importing it into a history, which, let's face it, Fred, our kids have never been taught Australian history properly. I no, mean, if we haven't. were lucky, we got a gold rush chapter in our book. We didn't get to see... What, how we became a nation, and now that's really starting to show. Well, you know, uh, I mean, Captain Arthur Phillip was under instruction to seek amity and peace with the natives and consider them equal before the law. He's the man who, who founded the colony in 1788. That is, as you say, that is distinctly different to how the United States or America was settled. So how can they import American-style history wars to Australia. It's, 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 it's incredibly ignorant. The answer is for money. This is all about, I mean, if you read what the voice is, in order for the voice to be upheld, it has to be part of an overall victim narrative. And for that to work, you have to rewrite history. Otherwise, no one's going to vote for it. So you change the narrative, you turn history instead of a complicated and we have to say ultimately a good force. I mean, Australia, unique in the world, wanted to settle in peace and it wanted to build a prosperous nation. I mean, go back and see if you can find a history like ours anywhere. You can't. 
and to desecrate our history, to rewrite all the stories of the people who built this country is appalling. And the other thing that really gets me about these Black Lives Matters activists is the only people in chains who were treated like slaves in this country were the convicts who came over for things like stealing a piece of bread or a goat. They were starving. And they built railroads and highways and your cities and they built they even built their own jails. If you go up to uh, the coast of Southwest Rocks, they built their own jails. And they were in chains, but we don't hear that ever on the activist thing. We've all moved no, well, on. Well, Alexandra, <laughs> they had white privilege. You're going to have to in get their it chains. Right. They exactly. had white privilege. Yep. Alexandra, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Fred. That's Alexandra Marshall, whose brilliant writing can be seen every day on the Spectator Australia's website. Well, normally this Woke Watch segment features an organisation or person whose irrational and hypocritical wokeness is an easy source of amusement and derision. But tonight's segment is bigger than that. It's a battle for woke supremacy between two heavyweight titans. In the green corner, weighing in at six billion pounds worth of environmental subsidies is Drax, the former coal-fired power plant in Yorkshire that is now fuelled by wood chips. And in the other green corner, weighing in at a more modest annual budget of £800 million, is the BBC, funded by the humble British taxpayer, but purveyor extraordinaire of the global woke movement. And what a global story this is. The BBC sent a film crew to track the wood chips Drax was sourcing in British Columbia, Canada, and found, allegedly, that old growth forests were being chopped down to be sent off to Drax's furnaces. Drax's energy is considered green because, unlike the coal the plant previously used, the wood chips are classified as renewable. Then the BBC produced footage like this. Goodness me. It's devastating. Nothing stirs the anger of environmentalists more than footage of a denuded forest with a violin soundtrack. Drax is defending the allegations, saying most of the felled timber went off to be used locally for construction, and it bought only the straggly offcuts and wood chips from the ground. It has also threatened to send in the lawyers. But why bother with expensive lawyers? Drax has already won this fight. It is doing what it can to keep Britain's lights on during a severe winter of energy discontent. If it was really smart, it would drop the green pretensions altogether and offer to burn whatever it took to keep the lights on in Britain during this current energy crisis. As we all know, nothing cures wokeness quicker than the offer of cheap energy in the middle of winter. Well, it's been a while since we had Professor David Flint on the show, the eloquent observer of all things royal, legal and historical. And much has happened in his absence. David, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you very much, Fred. First, David, what do you make of Prince Harry and Meghan hoping to one day achieve a rapprochement with the royal family? 
Well, I found it very curious what they did and how they've behaved over this time. And obviously it would be a very difficult thing to achieve, but not impossible. It would merely require them to treat other members of the family as members of the same family and to leave any questions, any disputes, anything like that to private meetings between the families and to stop going into the media and carrying on about it. Well, apparently they want to make up after they've, they've made their various exposés in book and on television about life behind closed doors in the royal family, that would seem to preclude any, any chance of a rapprochement, don't you think? I would think so, particularly this book, if it's going to be as such an expose as it's claimed to be. The sort of things that are complained of are, I, I think, in many respects, either invented or exaggerated. They're having a very pleasant life, no doubt, in the United States. They decided that uh, they didn't like the life which uh, Megan knew that she was marrying into. Well, that was their own business. But to complain about this and to complain in public and to effectively fabricate things is not really the way to ensure that uh, you can get on with other members of your family. Well, there were some reports that the that they planned to conduct some sort of uh, charm offensive on Her Majesty the Queen before she died. I mean, these are two very cunning and manipulative people, aren't they, David? They, they, it sounds like they don't really belong in the royal family at all, or do they? <laughs> well, uh, I always think back to uh, Mrs Simpson, the Duchess of Windsor, and how much she was denigrated. And however much people denigrated the Duchess of Windsor, she had the very good sense of keeping quiet. She never talked about things. Uh, it is said that she didn't really want to marry the king, that she would have been very happy to have maintained the relationship and not turn it into a formal marriage. It was the king who wanted that. And he became the Duke of Windsor and she the Duchess. But after that, she maintained a very discreet silence and hardly ever said anything concerning uh, royal matters. Well, there was a lot of optimism when Charles um, assumed the throne after the, the death of his mother that his previous uh, obsessions with various woke causes would be discarded and that he would uh, emulate his mother's great and almost, uh, almost unmatchable reign as the uh, monarch. How do you think he's going? The first thing he had to do was decide to not go to COP27 in Egypt, which is coming up soon. Well, we don't really know what exactly happened between the King and the Prime Minister. Those matters are supposed to be private and never made public. And yet we had stories which told us precisely what happened. I remember all those stories which told us about the reaction of the royal family to the Australian referendum. And uh, I remember Mark Stein saying, well, if uh, I, I, I happened to be having a dinner at which the Queen and Duke were present, and if anybody knew what was, what was their 
their private conversation concerning this would have uh, surprised me because they showed no public reaction to the result of the referendum in Australia. Yet we had reports of the precise comments made by the Prince and the Queen's replies to those. And I doubt whether they would have made those comments in front of anybody. They were obviously fabricated and a lot about the royal family is fabricated. We don't know what happened in relation to discussions concerning uh, the King going to COP in uh, whatever it's called well, in Egypt. Well, COP27 at mm. Sharm el-Sheikh in, in Egypt. Well, what's your, what's your educated guess, David? You're probably in a better position than most. Do you think Charles wisely decided not to go or was it Liz Truss that told him not to? I would have thought that he would have had the sense to realise that he couldn't go as king. It was different in relation to Glasgow because that was held in the United Kingdom and the Queen would have been advised by the Prime Minister to go there and perform some public function like opening an international conference in the United Kingdom. That's a different function. But for the King to go as it were almost a super delegate to Egypt would be a ridiculous thing and I can't imagine Charles, particularly after what he said both in a comment to the media but also in his official speech, I doubt whether he would seriously contemplate playing that role at one of these conferences. Well, it's only been a few weeks, but uh, ha have we had enough time to see how he is going? Have you made, formed any opinion on how Charles has uh, stepped into the role? Well, I think apart from that, and I, as I say, I have strong doubts about the veracity of that, but uh, I do think that he has perform been performing very well, particularly in relation to his very first speech, which was superb, entirely appropriate, and he conducted himself with great dignity in a moment of great personal sadness, that is during the mourning period, I think he's performing very well. Well, if whichever way he goes, he's going to be tested by Harry and Meghan. So all that dignity will be, uh, he'll need it in spades, I think. Now let's talk about the Essendon uh, Football Club, where, which has created a crisis for itself of its own making by essentially sacking its new CEO for being Christian. Very simple question, David, is that legal? Well, I can say without any challenge that it was completely illegal. And I can say that without any challenge because uh, the gentleman concerned is obviously not going to sue for this. So we'll never know the decisions of the courts. I remember my father telling me that a friend of his asked him once, did he know a lawyer with one hand? And my father said, why on earth would you want a lawyer with one hand? And my, friends, my father's friend said, well, uh, whenever I go to see a lawyer, they always say on the one hand this and on the other hand that. And lawyers do that. Lawyers are the most divisive of people. They are paid to, to ensure that there is division and lawyers will take very different stands in relation to a case where there's actual litigation. There'll be lawyers on one side, lawyers on the other. And we'll only know the final result when there's a final appeal as to what the law is. But I think that the law, the intention of the law is clear. The various discrimination laws that you can't discriminate against a person uh, 
concerning their religion in employment. And clearly, I, I cannot see how this was not discrimination in employment. They say that they didn't raise this during the discussions concerning his employment. They raised it immediately afterwards. But uh, their conclusion seems to me to be the, the best example of serious discrimination in relation to religion. And uh, the comments which have been made, which have indicated that it's only because of a particular religion, that is the Christian religion, uh, I am sure completely true. And this is unacceptable. We can't have this in Australia. Uh, and it, it's a reflection of a view of the elites we saw this in Victoria. It's, it's not the first time in Victoria. In Victoria, we saw the police going on a fishing expedition in relation to Cardinal Pell. There was no complaint to the police about Cardinal Pell. They went out and looked for a complaint. And then we saw the most, the most horrific behaviour in relation to his being brought to court where there was a gang, a mob outside. And I am absolutely astounded in that regard that the judge allowed the trial to proceed. I, I would have thought that the judge would have said, well, we can't proceed with this trial if that sort of thing is going to happen as he's brought to court. We have to do it in a place where he can be brought to court without having to go through such a crowd. Well, a, a contact of mine in Victoria has said that, that Dan Andrews, who, who effectively kicked off this dispute by criticising Andrew Thorburn as the appointee, as the CEO of Essendon, is now about to suffer a backlash, not, not only from Christians, but from Muslims as well. I mean, it's one thing to assume that you are going to get the woke vote at a forthcoming election, but it's pretty easy for some people to forget that there's more <laughs> religions in our society than just Christianity. This is going to spook a lot of people. And the strong woke vote, the people who are going to make their decisions as to how they vote, is quite small. Uh, it consists mainly of people in certain industries who are affected by whatever silly Marxist views are coming out of the United States. They're usually designed to destroy institutions. For example, we have uh, the ones about gender fluidity and we have the ones about climate change. All of these are not strongly held, if they are held at all in the general population. They are only held by a very small clique of elites, starting out with the academic communities and then moving into allies who feel that it's safe to support them, in allies in politics and in big business and in the bureaucracy. The number of people who are actually going to vote because they're impressed by what the Premier said about Mr Thorburn will be very small. I think people will vote on more realistic issues than that. But they'll also be swayed by the extraordinary weakness of the official Liberal Party, which does not seem to be providing the opposition you would expect indeed. from the Liberal Party. I indeed. I think, I, I think the, the, the rather alarming or disturbing subplot to all this, or subtext to all this, is that, is that Every one of these developments seems to undermine one of our treasured cultural or legal institutions, and there, there, there doesn't seem to be any way of clawing them back, you know, electorally or otherwise. Yes, it's extraordinary how, for example, 
those elites have taken over the bureaucracies, the sporting bureaucracies, not the athletes, but there's a, a bureaucracy behind them, which is work, which is elite, and which decides to adopt and apply some particular elite philosophy. And we've seen that, for example, in this case, we saw that with, uh, with uh, the footballer Israel Falau, where it was the bureaucracy of the rugby union which was targeting him merely because he, he was uh, speaking in a chapel of his religion and he was reciting uh, parts of the Bible which are well known and which may be critical of people who drink, for example, drink to excess or commit adultery or have any form of sex outside of marriage. Well, this is part and parcel of some of the epistles in the, in the New Testament. So why shouldn't Israel Folau have been saying that and why? And, and why can't Andrew Thorburn? Yeah, yes, I exactly. mean, but if Andrew Thorburn is, is a repeat of Israel Folau, then the Essendon Football Club could be in a lot of trouble <laughs> because Israel wound up walking away with a lot of money. Now, let's move to the National Corruption Commission, which is one of the key uh, initiatives of the new Albanese government. I thought, David, I thought this thing... Uh, which is terrible, could only be traced as far back as the hopelessly inadequate in, uh, Institute for uh, the uh, ICAC in New South Wales. But uh, you say it can be traced back to Henry VIII. What's that about? <laughs> well, that, that's a, a wonderful statement by a, a, a colleague in the media who, who uh, likened the vague and con their the, the pages of in the legislation which tell us what corrupt conduct is. And the whole point is, they seem to be saying that uh, the new anti-corruption anti commission can define itself what corrupt conduct is. Uh, and uh, the reference was to Henry VIII provisions in legislation, and these copy the statute of proclamations of Henry VIII. And what they effectively do is they delegate to a minister the power to repeal the legislation or amend the legislation, which is an extraordinary power. And these are, these are discredited provisions. They, they had been used occasionally and they're highly discredited. But here we have in the legislation concerning the National Anti-Corruption Commission that it will virtually decide what is corrupt conduct. Now, what it should be doing and the original ICAC, which was in Hong Kong, the New South Wales authorities borrowed the name, but they didn't borrow the, the basically superb institution which existed there. The original ICAC, and that was when Hong Kong was under the rule of law and people flooded to the colony because it was conducted under the rule of law. And all it did really, it was a specialised unit which prosecuted people for crimes relating to corruption. That's all it did. It didn't yeah, hold but they're crimes. They're, they're crimes you're talking about. These yes. are, the, the, the National Crime Commission will investigate potential behaviour. It's, it's incredibly disturbing. David, I'm afraid we've run out of time, but uh, we'll have to get you back again sooner this time. David, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. That's Professor David Flint. And just before I go, here is footage from the final stage of the most amazing thing happening in Australia right now. 
It's young electrician Ned Brockman from Randwick, Sydney, crossing the border into New South Wales, having run from Cottesloe Beach in Perth, starting on September 1. His destination is Bondi Beach, a journey of almost 4,000 kilometres, which he says he will reach next Monday evening. Brockman is a country boy from Forbes in central New South Wales who moved to Sydney to find work after he left school. He was struck by the amount of homelessness he saw in the big city and decided to use his obsession for long distance running to do something about it. His aim for this run is to raise a million dollars for the homeless charity We Are Mobilize. As he enters his final week, the total is sitting at a handsome $700,000, but still another 300 to go. The record for the fastest crossing of Australia by foot was set by German Achim Hoikenes in 2005, when he completed the run in 43 days and 13 hours. Brockman was hoping to beat that, but pain in his feet and knees slowed him down on the Nullarbor, and he's now aiming to do it in 47 days. His welcome to Bondi is nevertheless going to be huge because Brockman has inspired so many people along the way. He's a typical Aussie country boy with a huge heart and a high tolerance for pain. His motto is get comfortable being uncomfortable. If you see him on his way to Bondi, give him a toot or a wave and if you can, Donate some money by going to nedsrecordrun.com. That's nedsrecordrun.com. Well, that's all from me. Thanks for watching, and don't forget to tune in tomorrow night for the great Alan Jones giving a voice to the voiceless here on ADH TV. And I'll see you straight after him at nine. Good night.